0: Well, please open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4. It's always a privilege to open God's Word and bring to bear the truth of the Lord into our lives, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, these next several messages through the end of the year and what the Lord has for us in the next three accounts here in Mark's gospel, we are reminded of the deity of Christ as he reigns over storms, as he reigns over spirits, and he's as he reigns over sickness. And as we then approach Christmas, which, Lord willing, we do plan to meet and worship on Christmas Day, what better day uh, to worship the Lord than on a day where we Specifically, remember Christ's incarnation, and we look forward to learning and and focusing on our incarnate Christ, God in the flesh. But this morning, we're transitioning from Jesus' teaching in the parables at the end of chapter 4 to these three demonstrations of his power over the storms over the legion of demons, over the woman with the issue of blood, and the girl who dies and the Lord brings back to life. And so this morning our text is from verse 35 through 41 in Mark chapter 4, and we'll read that here in this morning. Mark chapter 4 beginning in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, obey him. Christ rules nature. Christ rules demons. Christ rules over the physical body. As Mark continues to establish who Jesus is, and remember that his opening statement is that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is establishing that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the ruler of all things. Jesus is the one in whom all are called to trust. And in these three accounts, the first that we just read, Jesus is seen ruling what no earthly ruler can rule. There is no ruler that can control storms. There is no ruler that can control spirits. There is no ruler that has ultimate power over the body and over sickness and over death. Christ is the preeminent Son of God. And as we think about the placement of these accounts in the unfolding of Mark's gospel of Jesus Christ, he places these these accounts immediately after Jesus has taught about the kingdom of God in parables. And Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God culminated with the teaching that the kingdom of God is going to be the greatest kingdom. There is nothing that will that will become an obstacle to the purposes of God and the growth of the kingdom of God and then the ultimate success of the kingdom of God. And so in the three accounts that we have that follows that teaching, essentially we have an object lesson. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is near. Why? Because the king is here. The king is here. And as a demonstration of the power of the king, the one who rules the kingdom of God, we see Jesus being more powerful than a devastating storm. We see Jesus powerful over a legion of demons. We see Jesus doing what a multitude of doctors could not do. And we see Jesus raising a young girl. Christ is king over storms. Christ is king over spirits. And Christ is king over sickness. Those who believe in Christ, glory glory in these realities this is the savior in whom we have placed our eternity this is the savior who defeated sin and death and we see very clearly his power and his deity in contrast these accounts while comforting to the people of god these accounts stir up the hatred of the world Those who belong to the world despise such claims. The world rejects Christ's authority over nature. Just think about the global initiatives to try to control nature, to try to make every bad thing go away. The world denies that its system is energized by the devil. 1 John 5.19 makes that clear. Ephesians 2.2 2 makes that clear. There is a clear and present evil. The devil is energizing the world system. And the world looks to scientific or superstitious remedies for a cure-all for sickness and death. The world rejects and despises who Christ is. And, and these accounts that Mark gives to us confronts unbelief by saying, this, this is who Jesus is. This is the one to whom you must bow. You one day will bow before the one who is the king over the storms, the spirits, and sickness. He is the greatest. There is none greater. And he's sending rain right now. This is a declaration to bow to the king. And so, as the world attempts in frenzied fury to control the uncontrollable, these accounts lead God's people to rest in their king, to take refuge in their savior Christ demonstrates that his compassionate power is greater. It surpasses the abilities of politicians, of scientists, of soothsayers, and of physicians. Christ's intervention reveals his deity and anticipates ultimately what will ultimately be a final restoration of all things in him. Now certainly we're grateful for those who rule well, and for those who help us when we're sick. But ultimately, ultimate healing, ultimate control rests in the Lord. And so as believers, we do not ultimately look to politicians. We do not ultimately look to physicians for our hope and for our strength. We look to the Lord Jesus while Thanking him for those that he provides for us. One other element of introduction this morning as we look at this Christ who rules the storms and who rules spirits and who rules sickness, we note that he is the head of the church. He is still the head of the church. And so whatever storms that threaten, whatever spiritual opposition God's people face and the church faces as we wait for His return, whatever sickness and death comes that so often does intrude in the church in the body of Christ, we recognize that Christ is sovereign over all of these things. He's the one that we trust. No devastating event that we face, no devastating event that arises, takes arises outside of the authority of Jesus Christ. And you know, if, if we would just, if we went to the book of Acts, what we would find is that even in the early church, you, you would find examples of the church facing facing natural disasters, famine, and storms. You would find examples of the church facing the opposition of evil spirits, and you would find the church uh, dealing with the suffering of sickness. But in all of that, Christ is remaining supreme, and Christ is building His church. And so as we narrow into this account before us in Mark chapter 4, what we find is that Jesus is teaching the disciples to look to him in the fiercest storms. Notice that Jesus is the one who initiates everything in verse 35 when he says, let us go across to the other side. And as the storm comes and they turn to Christ and Christ stills the storm, Jesus teaches his disciples through a rebuke. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so cowardly? Have you still no faith? And it dawns anew and afresh upon their thinking, who is this? Who is this? Christ's sovereignty over the storm is a lesson for his disciple. And it's a lesson that every disciple of Christ must learn. We we follow Christ as these disciples did. They left everything to follow Christ, and yet they still had many lessons to learn. And often, often it is in the crucible of of terrifying circumstances, of storms that are beyond our control that we learn anew and afresh to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who alone is our refuge. As storms rage around us, we're reminded, he is our life, he is our hope. Psalm 46 in verse 1 and verse 11 states what the heart cry is of every child of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob. He is our fortress. And how often, how often do we need to be reminded of that? There is no stronger fortress Than our God. And in the storms, in the storms, we're reminded of that. Our theme this morning from this text is that Jesus ordains storms to train his followers. Jesus ordains storms to train his followers. This is not Jesus passively saying, Oh no, there's a storm. How can I use this? Now he's in control of the entire of the entire account. He ordains storms. He is the sovereign over the storms and he uses those he ordains those storms. He ordains those seasons of trial, those devastating times to train his disciples, his followers. So we're going to look at three lessons today from the storms three lessons and I'll try to enumerate them as I go through as lesson 1 lesson 2 and lesson 3 lesson 1 lesson 1 is this following Christ does not exempt you from storms following Christ does not exempt you from storms look at verses 35 Through 37. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now we look at this. And we say, okay, Jesus has called them to go to the other side. They're following Jesus. They leave the crowd. They take Jesus in verse 36, just as he was. They're, they're obeying Jesus. They're doing exactly what Jesus has called them to do. And, and it's easy for our thinking to go in the direction, well, if I follow Christ, then everything is going to be all right. There's going to be a smooth path. All my troubles will be, will be eliminated. And especially if I'm following Christ in obedience, things should work out well, right? The disciples are obedient. They do exactly what Jesus says. They follow him, and yet still his obedient disciples face a devastating storm. Following Christ does not exempt you from storms. And there are several realities that that contribute to this truth, to our understanding of this truth. The reality of life is that we still live in a physical world affected by the fall and groaning for final redemption. That's still where we are. Jesus says that, that he's not taking his disciples out of the world. They are in the world, but they are not of the world. And, and the implication of being in the world means that we still deal with within the, the physical laws that are part of this world. The storm that came, the storm that came on that little boat in the lake... Verse 37 says, it was a great windstorm that arose. It was a furious tempest, right? And I you know, try to think about a picture of what this might have looked like. And I, this is probably a poor illustration, but if you take a little kiddie pool and put a Lego ship in it that floats, I, I think there are some that float. And then you take the most powerful backpack leaf blower that you have and focus it on that kiddie pool and and that Lego ship, right? The the Lego ship would be in great distress because a furious storm would have come upon that kiddie pool and that Lego ship. And what happened in the Sea of Galilee, you had some high, high cliffs around the sea, high hills, and a sto- storms would come and, and a wind would come right through some of those high uh, hills with a very focused uh, thrust onto, onto the sea. And it would stir up the sea almost instantly and without warning. And the ships and the boats that were on the sea would be in great danger. It was part of the, you know, we talk about lake effect snow. This is a lake effect storm. It's powerful, it's furious, and it's life-threatening. And there are so many elements in this world that, that are life-threatening. The tornadoes and the earthquakes and the sinkholes and even just a rotten tree falling over. This world is affected by the fall and its groaning for final redemption. And and the reality is that those who follow Christ were not exempt from facing those natural groans. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In Romans, Paul actually encourages believers who are in the midst of trying circumstances with this reality. In chapter 8, Paul is helping believers who in the first part are struggling with the assurance of salvation in the face of their own sinfulness, And he encourages them that, no, in Christ there is no condemnation because Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. There's nothing that we can do to add to the righteousness that we have in Christ. There's nothing that those in Christ can do to take away from the righteousness that we have in Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ. But another aspect that often disturbs followers of Christ is facing suffering. And Paul picks up on that in verse 18. And he says this, Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul's argument is simple. As believers, we we expect a full redemption. We long for a full redemption. Paul says, it's better for me to, I, I want to depart and I want to be with Christ because this outer man is, is wearing away. I, I'm looking forward to being with Christ. And, and sometimes that anticipation creates a tension in the lives of believers when, when we face difficulty and we face suffering. And Paul is, is reminding us the ultimate goal, the ultimate fulfillment of our redemption is not here. It's hereafter. It's with the Lord. And he uses an illustration of creation groaning under the curse and the promise that that ultimately... The creation itself is going to be renewed when all things are reconciled in Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul says everything is going to be reconciled in Christ, things in heaven and in earth. And so your groaning is a groaning that is akin to what is happening even in earth as the earth Waits for the final redemption that will come in Christ. And so we live in this physical world that is groaning, that is waiting that is dealing still with the effects of the fall and the effects of sin and and the devastation of natural disasters, the devastation of storms like are taking place on this lake that are threatening life and limb, confronts us with the power of God present in nature as He upholds all things with the word of His power, both in what he allows and what he ordains and and the destructive forces that are present as the world groans, waiting for the final redemption, and also by the boundaries that he establishes. It's truly by the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And when we think about the power of, of the hydraulics of the waves in the ocean, the winds that we can't control, the sinkholes that appear, the tornadoes that arise, the earthquakes that, that happen, right? It's how are we still here? It's by the mercies of the Lord. And so we're reminded we live in a physical world affected by the fall. And another reality that is parallel Is that we still exist in a body that's going to die. We're still threatened by the power of nature. The the disciples in verse 38, as Jesus is in the stern, asleep on the cushion, remember, he's in control, and if you're in control, you can sleep. He's asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing we 're about to come undone. our physical bodies are about to be severed from our spirits we 're perishing. We still exist in a physical body that will die, and so what threatens what threatens our safety does cause us to fear and, and God gives us." Uh, God gives us in, in our body the flight or fight responses, right? Our, our adrenaline uh, rises and we are frightened when there is something that is going to threaten our life. Because we live in a body that will die, And following Christ, it doesn't suspend that reality. We know what the answer is when we die. We know where we're going to go when we die. When we die, but we still are going to die. And there's a natural fear that takes hold of us, right? When we barely miss a fatal accident, we're afraid. Because we almost died, but it goes beyond the fact of the potential for death. There, there are times, in fact, that following Christ, following Christ, places you in extreme danger. Now, in our society, in our world, we are, where we live now, we don't often face the threats that so many others face. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 23 through 29, gives a whole list of times when his life was threatened as a result of his ministry for Christ. And sometimes it was by the hands of his enemies, but one of the, one of the gripping statements that he makes is five times I was shipwrecked. That's a lot of shipwrecks that's a lot of threat that's a lot of times of almost dying we exist in a physical body and sometimes following Christ is the very reason that we're in danger but the storms the losses The sickness, the opposition, all of these things that threaten us in this fallen world remind us that ultimately our hope is not here. Our hope does not rest here. Asaph, as he struggles and looks at the seeming blessedness of those who don't follow God, and he looks at his own life and says, life is hard, what's going on? he comes to this blessed conclusion in Psalm 73 in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We live in this life-threatening world. We live in a body that's going to one day die But God in His grace leads His people to that conclusion. Yeah, my flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and God is my portion forever. And so as we think about this reality, this lesson that following Christ does not exempt you from storms, what we find in the disciples... Is that their obedience, their obedience to Christ, when he said, Get in the boat and let's go, their obedience to Christ led them to growth, not to ease. Obedience leads you to growth and not to ease. And thinking now again directly about the disciples, when Jesus called them from their boat, some of them, Back in chapter 1, what did he say he was going to do? I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. And, and notice that he didn't say you are fishers of men. He said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to train you to become fishers of men. You're my disciples. You're followers of me, and I will Train you to become fishers of men. Again, when we go to Acts, we find Peter, for instance. Think about Peter in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, he preaches the sermon on Pentecost, and 3,000 people come to Christ. He then faces opposition from the Sanhedrin and, and ends up in jail. And if you turn with me to chapter 12, of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, we find that Peter is ultimately placed in a life-threatening position. As he preaches the gospel, as he proclaims Christ, as he fishes for men, he faces the opposition of an antagonistic politician. Chapter 12, verse 1 Luke records for us about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So here's Peter. He's fishing for men and he's in prison and humanly he can't get out. Humanly speaking, James has just died for the sake of Christ, and his expectation is probably that that is what is about to happen to him. It's an impossible situation. It's a life-threatening situation. But prayer is being made, and in verses 6 through 10 we find Peter miraculously released from prison. And look what he says in verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, "...now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting." As Jesus is preparing his disciples to become fishers of men, he's preparing them to face life-threatening circumstances for the sake of his name. What what better way to train his disciples than to put them in a life-threatening situation and teach them to trust in him, to teach them that he is in control of all circumstances no following christ does not exempt you from the storms it's part of life in this fallen world and it's part of christ's work to train you to grow in him to think like christ that brings us to lesson number two Lesson two, Christ is with you in the storms. Christ is with you in the storms. Look at our text again. Verse 36 tells us that leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. It's very clear. He's there. He is with them. And then in verse 38, as the storm is... Reaching its violence and the boat is filling, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And of course they wake him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still or be silent, be silent. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Christ is with you in the storms. Christ is present, and he is presiding. All that's taking place is entirely under his control. And it's interesting, when we we look at this passage and think about the circumstances... You know, again, if you think about yourself, I don't mean this to be silly, but you think about yourself as that little Lego man under the force of a backpack plower, you would be scared. And, and there's a sense that when we look at what the disciples say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I say, well, that's probably what I would say. I mean, I know the Lord's with me, but here I am in the middle of this storm, and, I, and, and it's so violent that I, that I think I'm about to die. It, it seems natural. And in fact, we would probably have a difficult time diagnosing what's going on in the hearts of the disciples if it weren't for what Jesus says after he calms the storm in verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Why are you so cowardly? It's calling them cowards. Why why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why did Jesus rebuke his disciples for their lack of faith? I think that we can rightly rule out that it was not because they overestimated the strength of the storm. The language of the text is clear. This is a violent, furious, life-threatening storm. And add to that the fact that there were experienced fishermen in this boat. They had seen storms galore on the Sea of Galilee. And yet they were terrified. This this wasn't some beginner with a light breeze where the boat starts to rock and they think, oh no, these are experienced men who knew how to handle the boats and and they diagnosed the storm as life-threatening. Jesus' rebuke was not because they overestimated the strength of the storm. It was because they underestimated the The presence, the purposes, and the power of Christ. The one that was with them in the storm. Christ is with you in the storms. And as we read through Mark, you know, we're in chapter 4 right now. What's already taken place? Well, Jesus has silenced many demons. He has healed many people, many diseases. He's made the lame to walk. He's cleansed lepers. He just finished teaching them that the word of God would establish the kingdom of God, would establish the, the undefeatable kingdom of God that would become the greatest kingdom ever. How would a storm undo that? And not only that, he directed them into the boat. And I think the implication behind Jesus' question, have you no faith? The implication is that if the disciples had been paying attention, they would have realized that the king of storms was with them. And they had no reason to cower. They had no reason to fear because Christ was with them in the boat. The Son of God was present. The ruler of all things was holding them up in the midst of the storm. The reality for all followers of Christ is that Jesus, Jesus remains in control. Jesus rules when he is silent And he rules when he silences the storm. But the watch out for us is that as we follow Christ and as Christ ordains difficulty, as Christ ordains challenges and trials and storms in our life, and then it seems like we're offline, He's silent. It seems like nothing is happening. There's no answer that does not diminish his presence. Christ is with you in the storm, and he is ruling even in his seeming silence. Yes, when the time is right, when the lesson is learned, when when he sees fit, he will silence the storm and there there will be nothing that will stop the sea from becoming calm instantly. But just because he silences the storm doesn't mean that he was absent while the storm was raging. The storm revealed the disciples' faith was in shambles. They hadn't been paying attention to the one that was with them in the storm. They hadn't been paying attention to the Lord of glory. Is not our question in storms, in life, too often, what is Jesus doing for me instead of what is Jesus doing in me? The second question is the most important question. Our world and even broader evangelicalism is filled with messages that that claim that Jesus should be doing all kinds of things for us. Making life better, a good life now, best life now. But that's not biblical. No, Jesus is at work in us. And even when it seems like he is silent, he is still at work in us. And the ultimate end of his work in us is conformity into his image, into the image of Christ. This this is the basis of what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 and 29 when he affirms and declares that all things work together for good. And what is the good? Well, the good is in verse 29 that you be conformed to the image of Christ. And so even when We don't see the things that we would like to see. Even when it seems that Christ is silent, he is still at work in us to accomplish his purposes and to train us to form our thinking to reflect the thinking of Jesus Christ. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James picks up on this reality in his opening statement of this wonderful epistle. In verse 2, James reminds believers, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's just kind of giving us a, a broad scope that covers any kind of storm, any kind of trouble. And his instruction is, make a mathematical calculation. Count it all joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the implication in that passage is that when God brings trials into our lives, there's a testing that's taking place and it's for our good, it's to complete the good work that he began in us so that there is nothing lacking implying what? That there are some things lacking. And so in the next phrase he says, now if any lacks wisdom, and the assumption is that we probably do, as we face that trial and as we stay under God's hand until He accomplishes what He will do in our lives. If any lacks wisdom, how, how do I behave under this trial? How do I endure for the glory of God? Well, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And even in the midst of the trial, He gives, He gives generously to all and without reproach. Christ is with you in the storm. Christ is accomplishing his purposes. The storms do not diminish the deity or the power of Christ. He is is present in the fullness of all that he is. And how convicting it is for us to reflect on Jesus' words Have you still no faith? Have you still no faith? No, ultimately, as we find in Romans 5, James 1, 1 Peter 1, trials, the intense trials that the Lord sends to his people strengthen their faith in Christ. And as we find stability in Christ's presence during the darkest, most difficult, most extreme points of testing... Peter says your faith is proved to be genuine do you cling to christ do you cling to christ in the midst of those storms and how often is it that those storms and learning to cling to christ when when all seems hopeless it it becomes in a very practical sense the The confirmation of our faith and, and even then as we have opportunities to point others to Jesus Christ, we're, we're not pointing others to Jesus Christ from an empty profession. We're pointing others to Jesus Christ from, from the standpoint of a tested, genuine faith that has proved Christ over and over and over again. He is present even in the storms. So that brings us then to lesson number three. Lesson number three. Christ leads you. Christ leads you from fear of storms to fear of God. The reality, again, is that we are weak. We are weak in our flesh. We are made of flesh. We, we know we're going to die, and yet death terrifies us. The storms come and we're like horses with blinders on and it's so easy to focus just narrowly on the storm and focus narrowly on all of, the, all of the negative outcomes of the storm. But Christ leads you from fear of storms to fear of God. When the disciples realized that Christ did what only God can do, They were filled with great fear in the presence of the Savior. Look at the end of the passage. And they were filled with great fear. (laughs) Well, this time it's not because of the storm. That's been taken care of. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Here they are, again, in the midst of that furious squall. If it helps you, again, that, that kiddie pool with the Lego guys and the, and the leaf blower. And you can think about how it's stirred up. And You know, even if you turn off the leaf blower, the water is still moving. But when Jesus awoke... And he rebuked the storm. Our translation says, Peace, be still. And we have the exclamation points there indicating it was a command. And it was a command of silence, be silent. And immediately the wind stopped, and the lake became like glass. The waters stood in place immediately at the word of the Son of God, the creator of all things. He, he ruled the most violent storm, and, and this is the emphasis that Mark is giving to us when he when he describes the violence of the storm in verse 37, this great windstorm, the waves breaking into the boat so that the boat was filling. It's overpowering to these experienced fishermen and Christ's word stills it instantly. There's not a ripple. Can you imagine being on that boat? One moment you're fearing for your life, you can't hear yourself think because of the sound of the wind and the crashing of the waves and, and the yelling on the boat as they're trying to navigate the storm and, and the chaos that's happening all around and the next minute, the next second, the next millisecond, it's quiet at the word of the Savior. And and the gripping nature of that point in time is reflected by their confession. They knew this wasn't a coincidence. The instantaneous response of all nature to the sound of the voice of Christ They knew who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. I can't even make a windbreak for my fire in my backyard. And Christ with a voice stills it out with a word. Jesus says, silence and instantly a furious, life-threatening storm ceases and complete calm reigns. He is God. This is the Son of God. It's interesting that we find, what well, we find in Christ's power over the sea, it replicates numerous Old Testament accounts of God's power over the waters. We heard in, in Andrew's messages of God separating the waters in in Genesis chapter 8 God made the flood waters subside off the earth from from covering the earth in Jonah chapter 1 and and verse 15 when, when the sailors threw Jonah overboard God made the sea to cease it's a very similar word in Hebrew that we have here in Greek that, that he made the waters to stand. He stilled everything. In Exodus fourteen, God parted the waters of the sea and made them like a wall on either side, and the children of Israel walked through on dry ground. In Joshua chapter three, again he stopped the River Jordan's waters at flood stage, and the people of Israel crossed over. and And here are these disciples that are very familiar with these accounts, and they're seeing, they're experiencing in the presence of Christ the waters standing at His word. This is the Son of God. Look at uh, Psalm 107, where we find an incredible commentary on God's work in the midst of storms. Again, just another Old Testament passage that declares the power of God over the waters and substantiates the reality that Jesus Christ is indeed God as he stills the storm. Psalm 107 and verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships. "'doing great business in the waters. "'They saw the deeds of the Lord, "'His wondrous works in the deep, "'for He commanded and raised the stormy wind "'which lifted up the waves of the sea. "'They mounted up to heaven. "'They went down to the depths. "'Their courage melted away in their evil plight. "'They reeled and they staggered like drunken men, "'and they were at their wits' end.'" What do we find in that portion? Well, we find that God is the one that made the storm. He called the storm into existence. But then look at verse 28. Then those self-sufficient sailors, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. God rules the storms. God uses the storms. And and, and in that account, the sailors... They, they were self-sufficient. They realized how weak they were and they turned to the Lord. Here, the disciples, they're obeying Christ. They're experienced fishermen. They're in the waters and all of a sudden they find that they are weak and they are powerless in the face of the storm. They turn to the Lord. He quiets the storm. He exalts his name. Christ is leading his followers from the fear of storms to fear, to the fear of God. And when we come to understand and recognize who God is, who it is that's controlling all of the storms of life, the storms as real and as powerful and as life-threatening as they are, they lose their claws of their fear in the glory of the God who controls those storms. And we glory in the fact that we serve a Savior who watches over us and protects us. Again, in Jonah chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16, it was the same response from those who threw Jonah into the sea. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice of the Lord and made vows. God is intent of leading his followers to not fear the storms, but to fear him. And as we fear God, as we learn to fear God, there's a boldness that is cultivated in our lives for the sake of the gospel. There's a boldness and a confidence for entrusting ourselves entirely to the Lord. I mean, what what is it? What is it that that keeps us from living victoriously for the Lord? Right? There, there's an inbuilt fear that if I obey God, then life is going to get messed up. We wouldn't say it that way, but ultimately, that's what is driving our disobedience. That's what's driving our cowardice. But when we're reminded that God is great and that God is good, that He rules the storm, then our fear of storms is replaced by a fear of God unto obedience, unto the glory of His name. A fear of storms often reveals a preoccupation with this life. Whereas when we lift our eyes to the hills, there's a renewed preoccupation with eternity. Jesus, Jesus ordains storms to train his disciples. Following Christ doesn't exempt us from storms. Christ is with you in the storm. And Christ leads you from the fear of storms to a fear of God. Jesus is king over storms. And whatever storm is in your life, whatever storms may yet come, you can rest with absolute and complete confidence that Christ is the ruler of the storm. And as I close today, I would make an appeal for those who are outside of Christ the christ who is the ruler of the storms the christ who is the is over storms he's over all creation and he has announced he has declared that one day he is going to come and and he will reconcile all things to himself and that means that those who have rejected him will be reconciled in the sense that they'll be where where they are under his judgment for all eternity. They'll be where they belong because of their sins. But he offers himself. God proclaimed his love through Christ on the cross, and he offers himself to you to come to him, to bow to the king of all the earth, to confess Him as Savior, to repent of your sins and turn to Him for forgiveness of sins. In His love and His patience to you, He, he, has, he has sustained your life. He's protected you from, from fatal storms. And He extends Himself to you as your Savior for all eternity. Don't reject the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Oh, may the Lord give us grace to walk in the confidence and the joy of Christ our King, the one to whom we belong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we can rest in your goodness to us. We thank you that whatever rages in our lives, You are indeed in control of these things. And we thank you that you will bring us to a safe haven, that you ultimately will bring us right into your presence, and we will be with you for eternity. And Lord, we pray that the glorious realities of what you will do, what you have promised in your word, and what you have done in securing our salvation in Christ, that Our minds and souls would be strengthened in these truths today, that our lives would be lived for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com. Teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.